Hello, I'm Caroline Jane Miller. Welcome to Brew Theology. Everybody, that was Caroline Jane Miller. And that's bribery at its finest. So, like Caroline said, welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. We've got Ray, Christina, Jeff, Nate, Janelle around the table tonight. Jeff Gelber wrote the content. No fear? Question mark. And this is a conversation about fear within the world that we live in, within politics and religion. And we'll go off on many rabbit trails tonight. Uh, before we go into the topic tonight, we have ground rules every week. We tell everybody no soapbox is allowed. Nobody gets the uh, the last word. So you can be passionate, just don't be on that soapbox. And respect everybody and all their viewpoints, even if you think what they say is ridiculous. Extend courtesy by listening well. Ask good follow-up questions, but try not to target somebody and put them in a corner, because that's not fun either. All right, so uh, everything's up for discussion. Lots of rabbit trails. Nobody's a jerk or, or an ASS. I have my daughter here. That's why I spelled that. But now she's learning how to spell, so that'll be interesting. Okay. <laughs> Uh, by the way, if you want to start a Brew Theology chapter, just go to brewtheology.org and look at the different ways in which you can uh, you can do that in your community. So you guys ready? You can also ask us questions in the public Brew Theology Facebook group. That's right. It's it's the newest thing that we have on social media. We have a page, but now we have a group. I didn't know that those were two different things. And I think somebody from New Jersey, was it Nate or one of the guys up there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he was like, hey... You, is a, what does a group do? I didn't know. But because of a page, you really can't interact. Right. So interact with us. Post your questions and thoughts, and we'll keep brewing outside of the podcast. If, you, if there's a podcast that you didn't like, um, just be nice about it. Yeah, don't be a jerk. Yeah, there you go. We kill trolls. <laughs> so social media, we are on Instagram, Brew Theology. The only one that's weird is Twitter, is Brew underscore Theology. Some people only tweet the Dan Rosados of the world. Yeah, he's like, screw Facebook. Okay, so he's Dan is scared of Facebook. See, Dan edits these podcasts. So, so he'll just take that out anyway. So in a way, like we're, talk, we're talking to whoever's listening and we're talking to so, Dan at the same time. So does Dan only speak 140 characters at, the, at once? <laughs> we love you, Dan. And if you didn't hear the last episode, Dan and his wife are having a baby. We're actually going to have a baby shower for Dan, a Brew Theology baby shower, shower for all, and Edith. For all the people who come and participate and lead and moderate and do the podcast. So there you go. Those who are like in New Jersey go, I don't care, but you guys can come too. <laughs> so fear. Let's do introductions by uh, name, briefly, religious background, currently where you're at spiritually, religiously. And then lastly, what was your greatest fear as a child? So my name is Ryan. I grew up Southern Baptist evangelical in the state of Texas and over the last 20 years, and it's funny because earlier tonight, Jeff was saying, what? You went where? You were 18 years ago, though. That was So I started deconstructing a while back. And uh, I've gleaned a lot, though, from the Anabaptist tradition within the Baptist faith, the United Methodist, a lot of Wesleyan theology there. The Jewish part is a big part of my faith and first century uh, rabbinical studies. And then a little bit of like mystical Pentecostal, but not, not like... For me, not the cray-cray type. I'm a reluctant charismatic, so I'm always like, what? God said what? That's, you know, so, so like charismatic <laughs> with your seatbelt on. There we go. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm an uh, evolving Anabaptist method Jucostal with some process leanings as well, thanks to homebrew Christianity and Trip Fuller. And I am, my greatest, my greatest fear as a kid was probably hell. And 
the Satan that went along with it. And I'll leave that at that because my daughter's at the table. Well, uh, my name is Ray Johnson, and uh, I was actually the only one in my family that went to church growing up. So in from middle childhood through early teen years, um, I went to a Southern Baptist church. And uh, following high school, I sort of fell away from from that Christian faith and uh, went through a period of really self-directed learning and education about a lot of things, including philosophy. And then in my 30s, I went through a period of, uh, I wouldn't say staunch, but through a period of um, atheism and uh, where I did deny the existence of, of any kind of God. And then in my 40s, I began coming back to some kind of uh, self-discovering and enlightenment. So I guess the term for that is just spirituality and enlightenment. And uh, just like hanging out with some good quality people like yourselves. Your biggest fear as a kid? Oh, I forgot about that. Literally. <laughs> oh, man, my biggest fear as a kid. I guess... Um, my dad making me eat Italian sausage. <laughs> but seriously, I can't, I can't really think of you know, anything strange or, or unusual other than the typical stuff like spiders and snakes and you know, animals and stuff like that. So cool. that's it. So hi, I'm Christina. I grew up in the Baptist faith. My grandfather is a former fundamental Baptist preacher down in Florida. Uh, that continued on into schools where I went to a private school that was based out of a church. So um, kind of very strict, very conservative upbringing. Um, now I'm kind of more of a non-denominational slash monotheistic pluralist. So basically is everyone sees a different side of you. You know, your work, your work people see different side of you than your family does, than what your friends see and everything like that. So my thinking is, well, God kind of does the same thing. He reveals himself differently to possibly the Jewish people rather than the Christians, rather than the Muslims and everything like that. So that's where I'm kind of at at the moment. Oh, and my... Uh, my fear growing up. Um, well, since I grew up in Florida, mine was probably sharks and being attacked by a shark. Um, I grew up two blocks from their beach, one block from the river. And every once in a while you get the, Hey, someone was bit by a shark because they were surfing at night and all this stuff. So, so my name is Jeff. Hello everyone. Um, I also, Grew up in the Baptist tradition uh, up through high school. Um, and uh, in high school, started kind of questioning um, some of that, uh, some of the um, tribalism, some of the extreme tribalism, um, and started kind of branching out to uh, other traditions of Christianity at the time. And... Um, I've kind of sort of been on a progression uh, in a progressive direction ever since. Um, I think I uh, moved out of evangelical Christianity a few years ago, and um, 
You know, I would say I'm post-evangelical, but, you know, that, in a sense, begs a definition in and of itself. Um, I just, uh, I still really like um, the person of Jesus. Uh, Don't always like what uh, the term Christianity has come to mean in, uh, especially in um, Western culture. Um, My biggest fear Uh, growing up as a child was, um, (laughs) strangely enough, abandonment, Um, like abandonment by my family. My family never even came close to abandoning me, but um, for whatever reason, that sort of was it. Hi, uh, my name is Nathan. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I grew up in Southern Baptist churches as well. Seems like we got a lot of ex-Baptists here. (laughs) And um, my parents... Uh, made sure to avoid, uh, I think, what they called country club churches, where you just go to hear a feel-good message and uh, and then slap hands and go eat some barbecue after or watch the Cowboys. Um, we had uh, um, we went to Bible preaching churches, so um, I was really grounded in the version of the Bible that, or you know, the the version of the Bible that that gets. Um, taught at those practices, um, and so I I had a pretty deep immersion in like in the text in the way that it was taught, um, and <clears throat> let's see, I started to uh, to to sort of form a a bit of a split personality about it maybe around the time I was fifteen, where you start compartmentalizing all the things that don't fit within. Uh, what you're being taught, and when I went to college, I stopped going to church as much, but that was as much a function of me not having any friends at the church as it was um, of of a, a, like a, a deliberate choice to abandon the faith. And at some point in my mid-20s, I thought that the version, the, the what I had been practicing in my life so far was making my life worse. And so I split from that and I thought that I was splitting from Christianity, but um, I've been coming around in the last couple of years to seeing that there's a lot of people who believe a lot of the things that I considered really valuable and beautiful, um, but I had to reject, you know, kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And now that I'm coming back and seeing that there's a lot of people who are who are still holding the baby, um, that's really validating. And, um, and so I'm exploring a lot of ideas that I hadn't I hadn't encountered in in my youth. My biggest fear as a child was um, probably werewolves. My dad used to make us stay up late and watch werewolf movies, and then uh, he would tell us to take the garbage out, and then while we were throwing the trash in the dumpster, he would run out and sneak around behind the dumpster and then scare the hell out of us. So um, that's me and my brother. So, yeah, so that's werewolves. Hi, my name is Janelle, and I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene and um, spent 20 years in ministry in that tradition, moved out to Colorado a few years ago and really felt uh, the foundations of my faith shift in ways that had started earlier, but kind of found uh, concreteness. So I wear the label progressive Christian uh, with the asterisks of not that kind of Christian, and um, 
just really love doing the work of walking with others as they go through this journey of transforming their faith from something they were taught and given and was demanded of them to something that they want to live and experience. Um, and I was terrified uh, not only of kind of the apocalypse and everything that came with that, but what if all this stuff wasn't real? Like, what if Jesus wasn't there and heaven wasn't there? Then what? Um, and I really loved space. And so I could kind of imagine the universe and the emptiness of all of that. And that was not comforting to a 12-year-old. I don't know what to say. What's your name? Caroline. And what? how would you describe what you believe in? I believe in that um, my mom and dad can take me, can can take care of me and Anna. All right. And is there anything you're afraid of? Um, no. Cool. That's good. And actually, one of one of the things that you overcame last night was sucking your thumb because we went to the dentist yesterday, and they had a talk with you. Yeah, so last night was your first night not sucking your thumb. That's good. And you were not afraid. No fears. All right, so what are some things that you guys are, you think are good, like good reasons to be afraid, like good, good fears? And then we'll get to the bad ones, because I think we, have, we always think about the bad, but what are, you know, so what are some good fears? I was thinking about this for a while after, uh, after our last session, that nobody really brought up the fear of death. We kind of talked around it in circles, but um, I think the fear of death is really good because it keeps you from dying in situations where he <laughs> might do something that would cause you to die. Right now we're looking at this downhill skiing from the Olympics in the background and like that, that would make me afraid of dying. I love watching half pipe snowboard, but they're crazy. They're just crazy. Yeah, it is good. That, that fear of death, I think it does. You're right. It keeps humans and tribes alive. For sure. That's a, we did talk around it, but yeah, we never talked specifically to it because I think perhaps maybe all this foundationally is rooted in death. Hmm. Exactly what I was going to say. I think that foundationally, uh, a lot of our, a lot of our fear that is, that have, you know, a good cause is, you know, is backed up. The background is, is that fear of death. I mean, you know, if you're a soldier on the battlefield, you might be afraid of the enemy. But what's the real fear behind that is the fear that they're going to kill you and you're going to die. Yeah, I think any any kind of fear, um, not taken to the extreme such as phobias, but any kind of fear that uh, makes you think twice about your personal safety and other people's safety, um, even your, your, your emotional safety, I think, are healthy fears. And as a parent, I remember when Caroline was a toddler, first time she was kind of toddling around. And so I realized the first biggest fear was the stove. I wanted her to be afraid of the stove. And the first time I ever yelled at her, and the last, I'm just kidding. <laughs> first time I ever, ever yelled at her was when she was she was really young and, and she was approaching the stove and it was on and, and it scared her and she cried. And, and I felt horrible because, you know, she doesn't understand and I'm making a toddler cry. Uh, but I want her to be afraid of that because it's obviously for, for the appropriate reasons. The second thing is traffic. 
like when you have kids and like, so she's been accustomed now to always looking both ways, holding my hand. I mean, so now we're getting to the next phase, you know, she's going to be in kindergarten next year. So maybe holding somebody else's hand that she can trust, which leads me to my third thing. Now that she's older, we've talked about this stranger danger. So unfortunately, you know, talking to your children about, um, the unfortunate aspects of life and certain people who are, uh, unhealthy and make bad choices. And well, they, I told her some people take kids and, oh, that was hard to say. Like, cause that's, the, they want to trust people. Yeah, seems yeah, for sure. So, uh, those three things, raising kids, at least for now. And the next will be dating when she's older. So I'll come to the door with a shotgun. If we're, if they're, if, <laughs> if we're still allowed to carry them, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't have a gun, but, <laughs> um, I would say mine actually, um, was guns. Um, my dad was, is a former police officer. So I remember growing up when I go down to Florida during the summers, my dad would all sit us in front of him and say, okay, you know, I'm a police officer, so I have a gun. What are the rules about what happens when you see a gun? You come find me. Once you come find me, you don't touch it. Don't say, you know, just say, dad, I found your gun and I'll come and handle it, but you don't touch it. Just come find me. And there you go. So I think that instilled a really good fear of like, I don't even want to touch a gun. What's something that would be good to be afraid of? Um, lots of scary animals. Like snakes? Yeah. You always have to watch out for the snake in the garden. You know, that reminds me, Nathan, actually I was afraid of this, to me at the time, was a very large black and white German Shepherd. And that dog was vicious. And it's funny because when I got older, like when I got to my late teens, it wasn't, didn't seem that vicious anymore. But, you know, when I was eight or nine years old, every time we'd walk by that house, that dog just sounded so vicious, man. I was afraid that somehow it would come out, you know, get out of the backyard and get a hold of me. <laughs> I never used to be afraid of dogs until one of my roommates adopted a pit bull. And when you play with that thing, well, he's got his, he's got his grip on something and he shakes his head back and forth and you feel how hard he can bite something and the violence with which he can subject it to which he can subject it. You're like, man, I really hope that I never get a pit bull bite my arm and just shake his head as hard as he can. Oh yeah, man. I think this is sad, but one of the things that I'm afraid of, for good reason, are um, bad leaders. Um, I've just seen so much damage done by bad leaders. And I think that the why that's a good thing is because you learn what a good leader is and what characteristics to look for and how to kind of ask good questions and holistic questions and, and learn who you're following. Um, and nothing's ever perfect. I totally get that. But I think that that as we, especially some of us from church traditions, have learned that not everyone should just be trusted, but that needs to also be tested. Um, and same thing goes for bosses and um, people that we look up to, like determining that they're a good person, that they're worth following is an important, I think it's a, it's a good fear. Yeah, that, that's interesting because that did not come up the last two weeks. We've already talked about this two different weeks, two different tables that I was specifically in. I know you were at a different table, uh, but I can specifically speak to having worked for a church, no names, no none of that. But 
somebody that I know specifically well in that church, they were, they were hurt for, for years based on this one leader. Mm -hmm. And so, um, gosh, I was, I mean, I I was fine. I'm like, I kind of worked through it myself, but I I knew that this one person had this almost like a, I I kind of had this picture of somebody on a hill, like looking down and hovering their arms over all these people who were like, feed me, feed me, feed me. Cause that's what humans want. They want a leader, give us a King, give us a president, somebody who's going to save us. And unfortunately, that's also something that I'm a little afraid of, that in churches across America, we have idolized pastors, mostly male pastors, put one guy in a pulpit, and then, um, man, some of that, some of that, not, that's unhealthy, but also when those guys are unhealthy too, that makes it even worse. So, And yeah. when you see it up close with people that you love, you're like, oh, are they ever going to be able to find healing through this? And and I want to, you know, you want to control that too. Like, you can't, you know, now they got to learn their own lessons, but... Uh, it's that's, rough. That's that's good. So that's that's I would I will say that's a good fear too. So I'm starting to think through the ideas of um, like I don't know the exact label to label it under, but something like chosen ignorance. Ignorance, or uh, so when you say ignorance, like I'm choosing not to learn this and put blinders on, or is this more of like a lack of wisdom? I, I mean the the first um, that I'm choosing not to not to learn this because it goes against something about me. Right, right. You don't want to face you don't want to face those inconsistencies or incong- incongruencies that you might have between your beliefs and how you actually behave. But I was also thinking of mental sloth. Mental sloth is is easy to fall into. And it's interesting because. Uh, you know, this might, we don't have to, but this might transition to the next side of it, the bad reasons for fear. But a lot of that willful ignorance or mental sloth is fueled by fear. Um, But it's like almost being afraid of those who are too afraid or afraid for the wrong reasons. When I say that, I mean people that have deeply ingrained, lived out prejudices or bigotry in their life. Um, And a lot of that comes from fear, but they choose not to gain more knowledge about the subject because they would rather live in their state of ignorance. I see what you're saying. You're saying that they have a fear of like the work that it would take to restructure their belief system to incorporate this new thing. They can see this new knowledge and they're like, mm, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm going to, I'm just going to pretend that doesn't exist because it looks like a lot of work to incorporate it. Yeah, that, but then the, then the one step back from that as well. And that it's what I'm talking about is, is essentially there's, I feel like there's sort of a fear, at least on my part, there's sort of a fear of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, right. In the you, don't, sense you don't know what that, they're capable of, man. You know, they might be capable of doing some real damage. Exactly. In the sense that they could be, that when people like that come into senses of power and authority, they have quite a, quite the ability to do quite a bit of damage. Well, and I think the way we're seeing that play out in our culture right now is that we're we're pretty polarized 
And then we use that fear of learning more about the other. And we, we hold on to that as a protective measure. And then that means that we aren't able to come to the table because I'm afraid to talk to you because I don't know what you're going to do to me. I don't know what you're going to say to me. I don't know. You're just going to like say all these things that I hear on TV and you're just a snowflake or whatever. Like that's where fear I think is becoming really paralyzing in the situation we're in. Cause when, you know, we're so thankful for the group of people we have that are willing to come to the table but for those that won't even come to, to a table where the explicit rules are, don't be a jerk and be nice to each other. Like, even if you're too afraid to come to that table, how do we ever have a discussion about how to move forward out of these, whether it's unconscious patterns or conscious patterns or unconscious patterns that are now being named and I'm having to deal with that. Um, I mean, these are big issues, big things going on under underneath. And if we can't talk about them and we let fear stand in the way of that conversation, uh, we're pretty much at a dead end. And that's, that's scary to me. In, in that same vein, I remember seeing a Facebook meme that said something along the lines of, um, we need to not learn when it's not appropriate to not talk about these things, but we need to learn to talk about these things in a civil way. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think we're about to see that. I think we're about to see how that plays out with what's been going on in Florida and the response out of that from these kids who are standing up and doing things that a lot of adults haven't been able to do. I think that's a fair description of what's happening that they're saying enough, like we're done with the fear. We're done with this name calling. Like we need to change something. And so we're going to have to set some of those fears aside and have the conversation. But that may be an art that we have to rebuild in this country. That's a really interesting topic of we have this fear of, um, of like, let's say, for people who commit random acts of violence. Right. We have a it's like this. It's like a background dread. Am I going to be there when that happens? Or is someone that I know or someone that I love going to be there when that happens? And. Um, that's an interesting one to think about from the perspective of, is that a good or a bad fear? Because you can't really take action on it. You can't, I mean, well, okay. So maybe you're saying something like we should take more action on it. We should be more proactive about legislation or background checks or whatever it is. Um, I, I feel like a lot of the, the, the reasons that you would classify a fear as good or bad is based on what, what can you do about it? If a fear, we haven't gotten to bad fears yet, but if a fear is bad, then it's usually bad because you're, it's all it's doing is paralyzing you in some way. Yeah, maybe you guys can help me make this transition. Sorry, I don't make, I want to make this into like a parenting therapy where, so, but I had a friend of mine who had recently sent me the website to uh, predators. Okay. I'm going to leave it at that because Caroline just came back to the table and you can look up your address and you can see specific markings all around your neighborhood and the different levels of these types of predators. So I was like, oh man, you know, you look at this and you look around. Of course, you can go anywhere. I can go to any of y'all's neighborhoods and I can see, and you can see the name, you can see the pictures, the people who live there. All right, now, now that I had this knowledge, what do I do with the knowledge? Because there's another friend of mine who has freaked out 
due to the fact of knowing that there's people around him when in fact I said, well, it doesn't matter if you're in Highlands Ranch, Parker, Broomfield, Platte Park, Wash Park, Congress Park, does any park, you're going to find this. And even that's just registered, right? So what do you do about it? Now, the good part of that is I'm not going to let Caroline or Anna walk down this specific road by themselves. Maybe at a certain age I'll have to because eventually you have to let your kids go. Uh, but then I guess those are kind of good caution. I would call them cautionary, um, just healthy ways of living, right? But if you let that prudence. take prudence, yeah, if you let that, <laughs> if you let that take over you and you let it cripple you, that then that fear I think becomes bad. And then I mean, next thing you know, you got to lock your kid up in a room with a surveillance camera and never let them see the sunlight. So they're pretty much a vampire. But you guys can help me because uh, I'm, I'm so I'm processing this, going I don't want to live in fear, but now I have this knowledge. I'm not saying that those things aren't important because I think they are. And I think they're issues that we need to work on, but we also need to recognize that like in it 50 years ago, we wouldn't have known about much of this, much less been able to do anything about it. And so like finding that balance between living in fear and owning life and being fierce in the way that we live um, becomes the challenge. And I'm, I'm not a great, person to ask because I have moments of extreme fear about things that I can't control. Um, and then I have moments where I'm not thinking about them at all. I mean, I know a lot of people that feel that way. They, they just will have, it'll, it'll, it's something different for everybody is, is what I've seen. And we all struggle with that one situation or moment where it's just overwhelming. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is other than, the things that I can like move forward on and make and work towards social change to make them better, then it's, I feel like it's my responsibility to work on that. Right. So that, that's the, so the point of that is we can use fear, the energy of fear for positive change. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's, what's been so stunning about some of the things on TV this, in these last few days is these teenagers have like, this voice has come out of them that is super impressive. Like it just in the moment, in the chaos, they were able to say enough, we've had enough. And that's, that means, I don't know, to me, I want to believe that that means something is, is culminating around them that maybe we're going to see something change. Yeah. Hopefully that that kind of consciousness is rising in all of humanity, right? Uh, yeah. One person at a time every day, you know? Kind of keeping in this same, same line of thinking. So Islamic jihadist, right, uh, immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I just found this stat right here. Annually, a number of Americans killed annually by them. Yeah. Two. Okay? Yeah, we, saw, we saw those stats yeah. a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah. And then you have being shot by another American. Guess how many? This is, I shouldn't smile at this, Hundreds? but it's, it's 11,737. So 11,737 Americans killed annually being shot by another American versus two people who are killed by Islamic jihadist immigrants. You're also more likely to get hit by lightning, struck by lightning. People, 21 people die every year of that. Get killed and, in the car and, and Here's accident. the thing. There's, yeah, there's, there's a list here. And it's, what's interesting about it is that if you find yourself in the two or you find yourself in the 11,000 or somewhere in between, I mean, we're all going to face uh, a traumatic experience, whether it's ourselves or a friend or a friend of a friend. And so then I guess, what do you, what do you do with that? Cause it can cripple you. Yeah. In the, in the insurance business, it's seen as, uh, 
probability versus severity, right? So low probability, but high severity, you, you do well to get insurance, right? Because if that, if that one case does happen, it'll wipe you out financially, right? So that's the idea behind probability and severity. Um, I, I would certainly do everything that I could, uh, even not for my kids, for other kids, right? To try to keep them protected from dangerous situations, you know? I think um, also what aids to this problem is our now 24-7 news cycle, where you, where when we were growing up, you, we could go outside and, you know, my mom would say, you know, joke with us, hey, go play dodge car, you know, get out of the house, go, go down the street. <laughs> and, and now it's the, oh no, we can't, we can't do this because there's a Fox news alert, you, you know, breaking news all the time. And we, and I think that causes a lot of fear in everybody. I, f- I fully agree. People say that maybe the world has changed. And yes, to a degree, obviously, it's always changing. But people have always done horrible acts of violence um, that are unimaginable. And um, you, know, you never wish that on your worst enemy. But now, like you said, information age, it's not just the news cycle. I mean, that was the first part. Now it's the right here yeah, in our hands. It's all social media. Yeah. It's all social media. We know it's going to happen before we get it on the TV now. Or even with the, you know, the Amber Alerts now, they're, you know, they go off on everyone's cell phone and it's, you know, 20 plus years ago, that wasn't even a thing. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, like we all grew up um, in different parts of the country, but most of us pretty, well, everybody here, pretty conservative. Were your parents pretty free about letting you play wherever you wanted to play? Because mine were. I'm getting nods, yes, by the way. We're absolutely. on microphones. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Would you please verbalize your answer, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and I was between two years old and like six years old when um the Zodiac killer was kind of wandering around the same area. But my parents had no, like, I mean, and my dad worked for a newspaper, so it wasn't like, you know, he was oblivious to this news, but they just didn't have any, like, they didn't have that same sense of overwhelming fear, like, if our son is playing in the street, you know, the Zodiac killer may wander up and, and murder him. Um, it just wasn't a thing. And there's there's something lost when the entire society feels constrained by that, right? There's something lost in in a a ten year old boy being able to go out and and climb trees and play in streams all day and go places he's never seen before and come home safe at night. Um, I think that there's kind of like with the uh, with airport security, there's there's a big cost to to an entire society becoming afraid in such a way that that it really changes how you behave en masse. And, um, you know, so there's something, there's something beautiful about um, not giving in to fear. Like, uh, like, I think that there's a sort of collective act of cowardice when people all over the country have to lose 
hours of their lives standing in line and, and getting to the airport three hours early now to, to make sure you get to your plane. What is the collective cost of that life compared to, and not to trivialize at all the people who died on 9-11, but um, there's not a lot of evidence that those security measures are doing much, right? But we go through it as a, as a collective exercise to, uh, to feel better. But there's a tremendous cost in life to that kind of timidity. And I think that there's something beautiful about saying, like, we're not going to let you make us more afraid. We're going to keep living the lives that we lived before, and we're going to celebrate our freedom, even if there's, even if there's a risk of, of something bad happening. Okay, so let's switch to theology and religion, if you guys are okay with that. Yeah, sound good? Sure. All right. So what about within your own religious traditions or friends of friends, you know, huh, I'm talking about somebody else's life, not mine, if you don't want to talk about your own, what types of fear tactics and techniques were used? Uh, I don't, you know, let's just, let's just go poorly. Let's say poorly. Let's not even say good. Cause I, I don't know how many of fear tactics used by religious leaders are good. If you have a good example, let me know. Maybe uh, this is a bit a bit weighty to start the conversation off with, but one of the things that I've noticed that's interesting about modern politics compared to the fundamentalism of my youth is that um, there's a lot of common characteristics, both on what I would characterize as the, the, the extreme left and the extreme right. They have a, a fundamental approach to, here is a set of prescribed beliefs you need to memorize all these and be able to recite them in order. And if you deviate by one word, you know, one jot or tittle, then, uh, well, you're in danger of hellfire, right? Like political hellfire or actual hellfire, depending on the environment, I suppose. Um, and I think that that kind of restriction of thought and restriction of dialogue is, is death to real life. Like you can't, you can't express yourself if the only thing you're allowed to do is recite uh, you know, pre-canned phrases that somebody else came up with for you. There's no life there. And, uh, and, but that kind of fear of excommunication from, from your church, from your, your political group, from your friend group is terrifying. And, um, and people will do a lot to avoid that. Yeah. In the past, um, I think on a previous podcast, I described the uh, faith of my youth as um, what felt very much like a bait-and-switch um, kind of deal, where, um, you know, the offer was this free acceptance of grace, um, but then once you accepted that grace, you better fall in line with all hundred of these rules, um, whether written or unwritten, um, otherwise you'll be ostracized or, um, or as far as literally excommunicated, asked not to, you know, come back to this church. Um, and I feel like maybe that social ostracization is is worse than any threat of hell, you know, prior to conversion. So, Ryan, you mentioned earlier um, that there are two basic ways to, to motivate somebody, right, or to influence uh, people. One is through fear and intimidation, and one is through acts of love and kindness, right? And um, where I began to fall away from um, the particular church that I grew up with um, was the, the, the preaching and the things that were said were more about fear rather than love. And one of the things that I struggled with um, 
as a as a twenty something. Um, as I was going through this period of time in my life where I was beginning to really start reading uh, different kinds of science books, um, investigate you know religion, um, I went to several apologetics uh, courses, and I I just couldn't I didn't get the idea that if if this if this sentient being uh, and I, I'm going out on a limb here because <laughs> given present company, right? But if the sentient being truly loved me, why would a sentient being like that give me what's called a false dichotomy, right? Which is, it's either this or that, either or. And so that's that's sort of where um, I started really wandering away from the church and getting more into philosophy and logic and um, those fields of scientific thinking. And, um, you know, nobody knows, you know, what's really out there. Um, I'll tell you this, I'm willing to believe in some kind of sentient being that cares for us. I, I mean, I'd rather have that, wouldn't you? I mean, we all would, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. I would. Yeah, uh, that's when you get to that point where you start thinking for yourself and asking those questions and then you end up having these leaders up front who just had the same old, you know, it's can the canned response. And um, I don't know. Yeah, what do you, how do you move on from there? I mean, some of us have, and um, that's part of the deconstruction, reconstruction process of I, I was fed the hellfire brimstone, and it was all wrapped in, like Jeff had said, you know, grace and love. And yet, ultimately, no, because you don't want to go to this other place, because this God will either send you there, or maybe he won't send you there. It's always a he, by the way. Notice that. Um <laughs> If she were God, she would never send you there. <laughs> Do you want your dad to spank you or your mom to spank you? Yeah, I think we know the answer to that one. Back in the day, they used to spank, by the way, millennials. I'm just saying. So I don't spank. Don't worry. I'm digressing. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that ultimately, like I, I said earlier, my biggest childhood fear was hell in that Satan fucker, right? I mean, he was, and that's also a he... <laughs> Because you know, you definitely get, you, a he. You, you, you get to, yeah, you get to a point later in life. You go, oh, the, the Satan is this the this acu accusatory voice um, who accuses you of shame and uh, like wants you to live in shame, not just guilt. And that, I think that's interesting because in some ways, church leaders, not all. I mean, this is just some because I, there are some amazing church leaders. Kind of play the Satan, right? Play the the accuser not even realizing it. So whereas you have this God who is supposed to be um, this all-loving, um, this gracious, this, I mean, forgiving thousands of generations, right? I mean, I, I think they're slow to anger, and then yet you have this accuser. That's what, that's what Satan means. And the leaders are like, well, that's an easier role to play. Let's play the accuser. And so in a way, that's, the, that's our internal struggle. Like we, as uh, humans, and then if we become leaders or mentors, we have to wrestle with that tension of the God and the Satan within. Sorry, I didn't mean to go down that road, but I, think, I do think that um, it's interesting how that plays out in practice because we've all been afraid of the Satan. So one question that uh, in none of the conversations that I've been a part of have we discussed, within those leaders... Do you think it's a subconscious, and it's certainly, you know, different people, different answers, but do you think it's a subconscious thing? And if there are those in which it's a conscious thing, aside from the justification of, well, I just want to save as many people as possible, what are the other justifications for using that 
power that comes through fear. I'm going to say one thing that's going to make me sound really cynical and old because now I'm 40 and I might as well be. It is money, okay? I really think that at the end of the day, power is great, but you have to keep the butts in the seat Mm -hmm. and you use whatever it takes to make sure because you have to, you're not just looking at out for your own family and the health insurance. You got to look at your staff. You got to pay the bills. The lights have got to go on and you got to have that baptismal water flowing. You know what I'm saying? Youth program's got to, got a crank in the women's quilting group at praise on Wednesday night. They got to have a space too. So all that to say is that you got to keep your people happy, got to keep them content. And so you got to use a little bit of fear at the same time. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a trickster game. And that, that makes me sound really cynical. And I don't think that's every church. I'm just, I'm, I'm playing to the, I'm playing to the base here. I don't think you're cynical. I think you're being honest. And I think that what rubs up next to money is power and control, especially when if you're dealing with smaller churches where maybe there's not a ton of money to be gained. And so I, you know, I have enough coming in to pay my bills, but I get my high off power and control and controlling people's lives and keeping them afraid, getting them to do what I want, um, getting them to volunteer for everything. And no, I don't think it's all conscious. I actually believe after, you know, talking to a lot of people that a lot of this stems out of the the movement in the 80s and the 90s towards church growth and that we sacrificed um, our process of preparing ministers for ministry and selecting them carefully for the charismatic good speakers that could bring in a lot of people And I know this is a generalization, and I sort of apologize, but many of those people, especially the the big names, have turned out to be narcissistic. They've turned out to be abusive. And I I think that churches and denominations that were behind some of those policies, man, I sure hope that when we get to heaven that they're held accountable because there has been so much damage done by the willingness to trade integrity and um, goodness and beauty and maybe someone that can't speak as well but loves their people. We've traded that for numbers and um, YouTube views and streaming media. And what makes me angry at quote unquote the church which I know there are people out there that would say you can't be angry at the church it's not a thing well I'm sorry I disagree because there's nobody that I can blame which means this system that we have in place is part of the problem and the church is culpable for the damage that it's caused to millions of people 